0: I saw you in somewhere in New Mexico On the way back home, maybe I don't know It was green, I think it's so green I wish you could stay, cause I know what lot to say Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kristofferson, and I got a special interview for you today. I'm joined by Mark O'Connell. He's the author of The Close Encounters Man. He's written for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Next Generation, co-executive producer of UFO Witness on Discovery Plus, and he's appeared on it many times, and he has his own podcast called farfetch So, Mark, thank you for joining me today, man. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. I I appreciate uh, Richard connecting us. Absolutely. Uh, You have the honor on this podcast of being only one of two books featured in our book club, uh, the UFO Book Club. Going back to 2018, we did The Close Encounters Man, and it was a a book that impressed us a lot because uh, what you did very well in that book is You know, you told Hynek's story so well, you combine it with this history of UFOs and UFO research and uh, not to mention his contributions to astronomy and other stuff. So we commended you, man. And um, that's uh, that's one of my favorite episodes, because I do recall calling Carl Sagan a turtleneck wearing son of a bitch at a point. But, you know. (laughs) <laughs> that's neither here nor there but uh yeah man we we love the book so much uh it's it's taken us too long to get you on this podcast though and, and i appreciate you making time man because uh, uh i recently just uh re-listened to it through um audiobook and it, it's still it's still a great book so uh first first and foremost I got to ask since you know you you've written for Star Trek, you've written about UFOs, what came first, the love of Star Trek or the love of UFOs? Oh boy.
1: <laughs> I have a real hard time separating the two, you know? Mm-hmm. So I so I'm going to date myself. I was born in 1960. So that was sort of right at at a high point in UFO activity and awareness. Um and for some my my mom was a librarian. I grew up in a little very little town in Wisconsin. My mom was librarian, and she would take me to the library with her all the time. And there was this one rack of books that I always gravitated towards. I don't know why. Um, but it was the it was the bookshelf that had the books about UFOs and Bigfoot and Poltergeist and the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, you know anything? Anything along those lines? There would be at least one or two books in that part of the library, and of course, I for some, I just read them all, and I read them all over and over again. I remember reading Brad Steiger's books, especially, being just like blown away um, by all the crazy shit that he wrote about. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think that's kind of where it started, and then um, that sort of transferred into a love of science fiction. And you know, in the early '60s, there wasn't a whole lot going on on TV or movies that I could that I had access to anyway. Um, with science fiction, so when something like Star Trek came around, and it was like, I mean, we already had Lost in Space, but you know, that was a pretty dopey show. But I watched <laughs> it, I loved it, but it, but I knew it was dopey. But then when Star Trek came along, it was like, this is cool, and it's not dopey. This is something really <laughs> special, and I, and I. I distinctly remember, this is the way I remember it anyway, Star Trek, the original Star Trek, they st- NBC started showing it Thursday nights at 7.30 or 6.30, something like that. And I had a very strict bedtime. Um, so when Thursday nights came around... I would have to go to bed like halfway through the new Star Trek episode, which was just killing me. And I can remember begging my parents, please, just one night, just Thursday night, can I stay <laughs> up a half an hour longer just to see Star Trek? And I I, I can't remember exactly, but I think I must have won that fight because I'm, I'm pretty sure I got to see all the rest of the Star Trek episodes, you know, all the way to the end. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my long convoluted answer to your question. And, and, it, and I still don't really know the answer to your question. <laughs> I can just tell you what I remember. And that's, that's how I remember it. They just sort of, the interest grew side by side. And, you know, it seemed to make sense that, you know, I was interested in both of these, both of these
0: areas at the same time yeah and I mean they they complement each other so well that uh you know it's 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 hard not to see them side by side in many ways, and like you know especially when you when you talk about uh when people talk about like you know some like even the Betty and Barney Hill incident, you know people claiming that it was you know inspired by you know an outer limits episode, which you know isn't really the case. But um, it's it's hard, you know, not to see that, especially uh, with the stuff that was going on. In the Twilight Zone, also, mm-hmm. they they dealt with the subject so well. Um, but uh, tell me about like the the first time that you got involved in writing for Star Trek. What was that like? How what was that process like? <laughs> it was great. <laughs> It was great. Well, I, I I knew
1: for a long time that I wanted that I wanted to make movies, and when I was um, in college, I took a screenwriting course. First time I ever took a course like that, or even knew that a course like that existed. I was going to the University of Southern California at the time. And I took this screenwriting class, and it was taught by this old guy who had been around writing, writing movies and TV shows for decades and decades, and he just said. He had great, fascinating stories to tell. He never really talked a whole lot about how to write a script, as I recall. <laughs> he was just <laughs> basically reminiscing about his career in showbiz. Uh, but it didn't matter because I started writing a script in that class, and it, that's what really got me interested. So um, I spent a long, long time trying to find an agent after I got out of college. Um, I went, you know, I went into work in video production. So I was, you know, I was still doing fun media stuff. But at the same time, I was always uh, on the lookout for an agent. Finally uh, finally found an agent who liked my work and wanted to sign me on. And the first thing she said to me was, you've got to submit a script to Star Trek. Well, it turned out, this is what I learned. This is Star Trek The Next Generation we're talking about here. Uh, This is the, the early 1990s. And it turned out that Star Trek The Next Generation was one of the only, if not the only shows, that would accept unsolicited scripts from anybody, whether you were represented by an agent or not. So even though I didn't need to have an agent, I worked through this with my agent. She persuaded me to write a a spec script, that's a speculative script for Star Trek The Next Generation. I wrote the script and um, my agent submitted it to Star Trek. And it took a few months for us to hear back, but... um, when we finally heard back from the Star Trek producers, they said, hey, we we like this script. We'd like you to come in and pitch some stories. And then they immediately give you the rule book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they they send you the the show Bible, which the show Bible for Star Trek The Next Generation is really a thick, thick, big, heavy document. So you have to read all of this stuff and just absorb it all. Um and, and of course obviously you have to watch the show every week. so you you're completely up to speed on you know the kinds of stories they want to tell and you know and how they want to highlight each of the different characters and the relationships between the characters. So um, so I had to do all that homework before I was ready to pitch. and they told me, okay, I could fly to LA or I could do the pitch over the phone. I ended up doing it over the phone from my kitchen table. In Wisconsin, <laughs> but it didn't matter. You know, they didn't—they didn't care where I was. Um, so they gave me—and they gave me some basic ground rules. They said um, you can only pitch four stories, and you only get one chance to pitch because there's so many people in line behind you that we can't really let people have multiple tries. You get one try, and if you fail, you're out. So I was like, okay, I I'll I can live with that because I don't have much choice. So I developed four stories. Um I pitched them to uh one of the producers, a guy named Joe Minoski. And um he shot I, I pitched all four stories, and Joe shot down all four stories. Oh. <laughs> so I was I was pretty heartbroken. I had my one shot and I didn't didn't quite hit the target. But then Joe started saying, okay, here's what I want you to do next time. He goes, we need stories about this and I want you to... And I was like, excuse me, what? (laughs) Like, I thought I only got one shot at this. And he goes, well, normally that's true. But he said, I really like your ideas. And he said, I want you to come back and try again. So that was all I needed. I was off and running. And it literally, I pitched for like the next year and a half, or or maybe even longer than that. It was every two or three months, I would have four new stories that I'd be ready to pitch and I'd make the pitch appointment and I'd sit there at my kitchen table in Wisconsin and pitch and pitch and pitch. <laughs> and Every time it turned out the same, they'd be like, well, we can't use any of these stories, but we really like your the way you think. So we want you to come back and try again. So I just, you know, first lesson for a struggling writer, if you get invited to try again, Try again. Don't be chicken. You know, take your chance. So, you know, I just kept I just figured as long as they keep inviting me back, I'm I'm gonna keep coming back, whether they like it or not. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's the long saga. It took a long, long time and it's like a lot of perseverance, but I finally had that magic day when I hit the right producer with the right story on the right day, and boom, they they bought the story. Uh, And that turned into the Star Trek The Next Generation episode called Timescape. That was my first sale.
0: That's awesome, man, though. But, like, that's that's absolutely true because a lot of... A lot of stories that I hear from the people that like, you know, go to Hollywood and they then they try to push stuff. They literally are just so persistent that somebody eventually, you know, takes a look and and, and stuff. And you kind of got to if you really want to do it, that's kind of what you have to do. You have to, you know, push it until you annoy the hell out of them, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, yeah, there's a lot to that. And, you know, you have to you have to feel
1: your way along you know cuz you're walking this fine line of being persistent you want to be persistent but you don't want to be a pain in the butt mm-hmm. you know it's a real it's a delicate balance just strike i'm not sure if i ever totally
0: struck it but hey you 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 wrote episodes man you got they made <laughs> yeah. episodes from yeah. your material you, so uh you know you you did something right man you know and that, and that's uh that's important you know like a, <laughs> you made it happen, which, which is great. So transitioning to the close encounters, man, you know, this all, this all begins, you go to, to the QFOs headquarters, which is really who it's really one guy's house, who, you know, who's holding the files. I mean, now yeah. it's different. The files have been moved, but um, what was that experience like walking in there? Cause you're looking for material for your blog. What, what was that experience like?
1: I was, I was, you know, the old expression, like a kid in a candy store. That's really <laughs> what it was like, I you know, I, you know, and it took a while to sink in after after a couple of visits that, oh, I, this is like, these are the personal letters of this famous person who I really admire. And I, I've just give, been given free access to, to all of this stuff. It, it was just amazing. And. I can tell you the the first time when I actually felt like um, lightning struck while looking through the Kufos files, I, I they were all arranged alphabetically, and I get to the letter S, and I, I pull out I pull out this huge thick file folder labeled letter S, and the first tabs I see are Sagan and Spielberg. I thought, whoa, these are the two stories that I want to know about the most. And they just (laughs) appeared in front of me, both in the same file folder, ready to go. So I start looking through these files. And the first one I do is uh, Sagan, alphabetical order. And so I flip open the files. There's, you know, maybe an inch worth of correspondence and stuff in this file. And um, the first document on top is a letter that Dr. Hynek wrote, a copy of a letter that Hynek wrote to Dr. Sagan um, back in, I think, the early 1980s or somewhere around there. I'm, I'm gonna get my dates wrong because it's been so long since I've done all that <laughs> stuff. But you can follow along. Um, so there's this letter Hynek wrote to Sagan and it's about this public appearance they had scheduled coming up in the next couple of months. And Dr. Hynek is requesting that they call a truce for this public appearance they're going to have a public debate about the ufo phenomenon and Heineck is saying can we please dispense with our personal feelings about this and just have an intelligent discussion about the phenomenon and hopefully give the people in the audience you know their money's worth and you know share some just share some interesting ideas with the audience that's what this is about well, I read that article and thought, wow, that's really amazing. So I go looking to see the letter that Carl Sagan wrote back to Dr. Hynek, and there isn't any. Hmm. Sagan ignored Hynek's letter. Ah. They had this public uh, appearance in Chicago, a public debate about UFOs, and Sagan just ripped Dr. Hynek apart on stage. He did not... He did not agree to Dr. Hynek's request <laughs> <laughs> to, to play nice. He played really, really dirty. Um, so that was that was the first moment when lightning struck. And I thought, wow, this is a story people need to know. Then I went over to the Spielberg folder and I flipped that one open. And the first letter on top of that stack is a copy of a letter from Dr. Hynek to Steven Spielberg. This is while Spielberg was in pre-production on the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Heineck writes to Spielberg and says, Hey, Steve, I just found out that you're using some of my material from my book in your movie. I sure would have liked it if you had asked me first. <laughs> you know, this letter, is he's wording it so carefully. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to call Spielberg a thief. Mm -hmm. But he's pretty pissed because Hynek's book, um, The UFO Experience, which had just come out just a year or two earlier, was the book in which Hynek introduced his whole concept of the close encounter and the three types of close encounter. So Spielberg comes along, appropriates that phrase from Hynek's book, uses it for the title, the working title of his movie. So I'm reading this letter. And in this case, there was a reply. Next page through the file, there's a letter from Spielberg back to Hynek saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. One of my production assistants recommended that I read your book, and I just thought that term was so cool. I thought I'd use it for the title of my movie. But look, we're not going to use that title anyway. We're calling we're calling the movie Watch the Skies. So I hope that clears things up between us. Um, and I thought, wow, this exchange is really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I just kept going through. There was all sorts of paperwork involving their correspondence. And, um, you know, it turned out uh, both guys got what they wanted. Heineck was hired on as technical consultant on the movie. He got to have his famous little six-second scene at the very end uh, at the U.F. secret UFO base. And... Uh, and Spielberg got to put Heineck's name on the movie or, you know, in the movie, sort of as a seal of approval from the world's leading UFO expert. So, so those were the two, those were the two moments when, like I said, those were the moments when lightning struck. And, and they were like early in the days of my researching the book. So, so finding those two, those two files just made me realize there are millions of untold stories about J. Allen Heineck's life. And I want to tell them all. <laughs> and, 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 and and Rob, it just it worked out so beautifully because I was living in Chicago at the time. and you're right, the KuFOs files at the time were in two different basements of people's houses in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So I was able to just drive like 10, 15 minutes and go to the Heineck Archives. And then quickly discovered that Heineck had taught at Northwestern University for 25 years. Well, that was just a couple of miles away from me in the other direction. And then come to find out that Heineck had done his graduate work in astrophysics at the University of Chicago, which was also just a couple of miles from where I lived. (laughs) So I was like at the epicenter of the J. Allen Heineck professional records collection. It was like all around me. And all I had to do was hop into my car and drive a few minutes and boom, I'd be there. And the archivists at the two universities were just amazing. The archivists at Northwestern just provided me with so much help and guidance. And you know, there would be days when I would show up at, at in the library archives at Northwestern, and the archivist would, would see me walk in and say, "Oh, Mark, I found something I think you'd be interested in." And it was <laughs> and and it was always something like just like this pure gem that I could put into the book, and that I never would have known about if it hadn't been for these archivists, you know, digging through things and and helping me out finding things. It was it was an amazing experience.
0: Yeah, and like when you think when you think about that end of it too because his contributions to astronomy don't really get talked about that much. Yeah. And to to see that um, you know, people appreciated that and to know like how much his students even at northwestern loved him that much you know it it's um and there's you know this image of the guy that investigated these cases and 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 tried to find answers but there's also this very public looking image of him in which you know he's very personable he he can he can you know make money for universities and stuff like that like the 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 picture that you painted was so was so great that um you know you, you really got to know him in your book which uh, you know for for someone like me who at the time that i read your book um i i I knew J. Allen Hynek's name when I was maybe, want to say, twelve or thirteen. I had uh, I had watched uh, the, uns- the unsolved mystery segment about the Lonnie Zamora incident. That's my uh-huh. introduction into all this. And and the one memory that I have is uh, I was in middle school at the time, and we were doing this project where we were deconstructing Billy Joel's we didn't start the fire breaking it down by decade and then the other part of it was what would we introduce into that if we had the chance so I you know in the in the early days of like internet web browsers and stuff so this is like 1996 or so going down into the school computer and typing in the name J. Allen Hynek to see if anything would come back and, and nothing ever did so <laughs> he's just kind of this like you know mythic figure in my head because I knew how how important he was to the investigation of the case and then years later you realize you know how, how big a, a figure he was and I know that, uh, you know, you said you respected it, but, uh, you know when you were doing that research, but what was your opinion of him at that time? What did you know of Jay Allen Hynek?
1: I think what I probably knew him for mostly was the movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, but also, there was the one UFO case that really made... I, I was totally into this for, you know, my entire childhood, read every UFO I could I could find. But the one incident that made it real for me was the Pascagoula, Mississippi abduction with Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, which took place in October 1973. So I was 13 at the time. And I distinctly remember my mom always had this like news radio station on in her kitchen. And I distinctly remember like sitting in the kitchen because they were reporting on this UFO abduction, these two guys who've been kidnapped by aliens. And I was like, this is real. This isn't just something that happened like 10 or 20 years ago that I'm reading about in a book. This is something they're talking about on the nightly news. It's in the evening newspaper. It's everywhere. And that made the whole thing really, really... um, real to me for the, for the first time. And and that's when I really started engaging. And I think that's probably when I first kind of got an inkling of who Heineck was uh, and, and, you know, what part he played in the whole drama.
0: Yeah. And um, I'm curious when you were researching the book, was there anything in there that surprised you? Because there were a lot of things in the book that kind of surprised me, but what researching the book surprised you about Heineck? Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> well, there. Um, first of all, his spirituality—that
1: was the mm-hmm. first big surprise. Yeah, um, I had this image of him as just this very straight-laced scientist who only believed what he could, you know, hold in his own hands. <laughs> uh, only to find out that when he was a young graduate student working at Yerkes Observatory in southern Wisconsin. Um, staring into this telescope all alone at night, um, he started to have some really, uh, you know, interesting thoughts about um, spirituality and mysticism. He he um, he he got in, he got interested in the Rosicrucians. Um, he was interested, and in he both of his parents had recently died right around the time he started college so that was still you know pretty fresh with him and so he was reading about these these uh religious themes and spiritual themes and you know they talked about things like uh you know uh uh past life regression or you know being able to see the past uh being able to connect with the past and you know in physical ways and so that was that was a big Big surprise. The fact that he's he's doing this serious astronomy work, but, and while he's doing that, he's also thinking all these really kind of far out spiritual thoughts at the same time. I thought that was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I wanted to find out how those two parts of his, you know, of his uh, character sort of came together. Um, so that that was a big one. I also really wanted to get to the bottom of the swamp gas case. Um, because there's been so much written about it and I, I always, I always had a feeling whenever I read about the swamp gas case in the mid sixties in Michigan, that there was something more to the story. Everything I read about that case and about Hynek's role in that case, it just never quite added up. It never quite rang true. And and as an offshoot of that, because so many people believed that Heineck lied about it, there were I quickly realized that there were all sorts of people who just adore and respect Dr. Heineck, but there are also a whole lot of people who hate him, who are still mad at him for saying that those UFOs in Michigan were swamp gas, mm. because there are so many of those people, including his you know, one of his best friends, Jacques Malet who was really pissed off at him for saying swamp gas. Um, so I knew there I knew there had to be more to the story there. It was just nothing I read added up. So when I started researching that case, the swamp gas case, I, re- I spent a lot of time researching that case. One of my goals with the book was to get new voices and new names into the conversation. You know, people who had been there, but nobody bothered to talk to. Mm-hmm. And so with the swamp gas case, I was able to do that. Uh, in in certain circumstances, and um, yeah, it's just when I started researching it, I realized how wrong most people were about the swamp gas case. Heineck, in my people will always differ on this, but in my humble opinion, when Heineck said swamp gas, he actually was saying the exact right thing, it was the only thing he could have said at that particular moment. It doesn't mean he was calling every UFO sighting swamp gas, but that's right. what a lot of people took it to mean. And that's why he got, you know, he just got attacked so, so viciously. So those I say would be the, the two big things is the, the mixture between his scientific pursuits and his spiritual pursuits and this whole bit with the swamp gas case and whether he did the right thing or not and, and, and whether, whether people can accept the fact that the conventional wisdom about that case might be completely wrong.
0: right uh and you know you th- there are also elements to that case where i don't think a lot of people realize that uh frank manner's story wasn't as consistent as people believed it to be because he kind of told it different ways to different news agencies and such this story kind of changed a little bit uh, you know and then the you know the Hillsdale case uh he didn't really get to talk to that many witnesses he only got to talk to two of them so yeah uh, you know it, it uh and and the way that uh you know you you presented that you you there is definitely a conspiracy afoot a little bit you know to uh uh you know what really happened you know the dude's you know there with a broken jaw he's got (laughs) to do this press conference and and he's being rushed to give you know an explanation when you know most cases you would need more time to conduct a proper investigation and it like in, in many ways he got he through that he got what he wanted he got a scientific study uh the only thing was is that you know the the people responsible for that study uh they didn't have the best intentions um you know dismissing it up front but uh one thing that really surprised me because like uh w- one thing that i say about him is like he had a symmetrical life in the sense that you know he was born you know around the time that Haley's Comet arrived and then you know he died shortly after it, it had come again and you know like with with um with like Mark Twain Mark Twain was very similarly born born and died the same way so there's that kind of like uh symmetry to it which is which is always interesting to me I didn't uh like poetic in in many ways like it's weird how poetic the guy seemed to be in in those kind of ways like the they these things that would pop up in his life and uh you know that just kind of it made me admire him more like that's that's the one thing that your book kind of like drove home to me because i you know i had read the ufo experience by that time like it i I was one of those nerds that got it out of the library every other week or something like that, because uh, they, it's like one of the few UFO books that they actually have in my library in town. But uh, it's uh, yeah, but like, you know, uh, again, I, I will like gush about your book for for a long time uh, going forward. When it comes to UFO Witness, you know you you're your co-executive producer. You've you've appeared on, you know, many episodes. How did that project come to be? How did you get involved with UFO Witness?
1: Well, I actually started UFO Witness um, right around the time that my book was published, which was June of 2017. Um, my agent and I started sort of looking around to see if there might be opportunities to uh, to either, A, uh, pursue some sort of film or TV project specifically about the book, like, you know, adapt the book as a, a TV series or something. A lot of the, I had so much unused material mm-hmm. after five years of research, so much stuff <laughs> that I couldn't fit into the book. So, So our second option was to see if we could sort of repackage the the material that didn't get used in the book and create a whole new project out of that material. So we we had talks with a couple of different movie and TV producers and one of the production companies, Anomaly Entertainment, um, kind of sparked to the idea, the second idea of using the, you know, the additional uh material. Although in the end it's kind of funny because we ended up sort of using both approaches on the show at the same time. Um but so, so uh, you know, we had some talks with them. The talks died out. A couple of months later, we sort of reconnected. And they said, you know what? We actually want to do something with you. So um, so we started working on the show. And the original, the original concept for the show was um, that we would, as I did in the book, we would reenact a UFO event, a fam- famous or not famous UFO event. Then we would talk to the eyewitnesses on camera hear their version of the story and then we would um sort of look at try to explain it in a scientific way um and so that over the course of developing the show though you know the network people get involved and Mm -hmm. the showrunner gets involved and you know the the original concept, it sort of goes this way and then that way. Mm-hmm. So in the end, the show wasn't exactly what I had originally envisioned or pitched, but but we were accomplishing some of the same things. The thing that made it most important for me was, uh, if you'll recall the first few episodes of season one, we had this wonderful woman in the show called Jenny Zeidman, mm-hmm. who was, if you read my book, you know she's one of Heim- Dr. Hynek's uh, bestest friends all his life. And um that's actually one of the big reasons that uh, Travel Channel slash Discovery Plus wanted to go ahead with the show was the fact that we had Jenny Zeidman there and we had access to the KUFOS records because it turned out, okay, I'm of going on a tangent here. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> so as, as far as the KUFOS records, the KUFOS official records were concerned. Bunch of them were in the basement of Mark Rodiger in this part of Chicago. Bunch of them were in the basement of Mary Caster in this part of, of Chicago. But there was a third massive collection at a home in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, a Kufos, uh, a Kufos Stalwart, Michael Swords, who was like, he loved to collect things, and whenever anybody had anything they didn't have storage space for, they would call Michael and say, "Can you put this in your archives?" So, so Michael Swords had an even, you know, probably an even bigger collection material than the Kupos places in Chicago. Um, so with all those pieces in place, oh, God, what was the original question? <laughs> I guess I, I do that to myself sometime. I, will like, I, I tell this little sidebar story and I'm like, wait, what was I talking about?
0: Uh, you're talking about... Um, uh... The, the material that you were using to... Um, oh, uh, right. Yeah.
1: Right. So I was able to get access for the camera crew from Anomaly Entertainment uh, in Kalamazoo to come into the archives in Kalamazoo. So basic... And another wrinkle to this whole thing is right when the show went into production, that's right when I was diagnosed with lymphoma mm-hmm. for the first time. So I uh, the original concept of the show was that uh, Ben Hanson and I would be investigating the cases together. Well, when I was diagnosed with cancer, we had to do a quick rethink. And the way it ended up, you'll see in those early episodes, is that um, I ended up being sort of the, the, the wise old librarian character <laughs> who was like in charge of the archives. And when Ben hit a stumbling block in his investigations, he would come to Kalamazoo to pick my brain and I'd be like, why, yes, Ben, we happen to have a. Uh, you know, an account of that case right here in the archives, (laughs) you know, and then Ben and I would go through it together and we'd like, you know, see like, Oh, well, this is what really happened. And, you know, so, so that was what obviously the show evolved quite a bit from Mm -hmm. the first time we pitched it to Anomaly to the time it finally made it on the air, but it was, it was, it changed a lot, but it was always fun. It was always a ton of fun. And just for me getting Jenny Zeidman on camera, even to talk for as briefly as she did, that to me was huge. And again, that was one of the that was one of the reasons that finally persuaded um, Discovery Channel uh, to go ahead with the show because this was like this was something unique. This was someone who actually was part of Project Blue Book, not officially, right? But yeah. she was absolutely a part of Project Blue Book. She was she could rightly call herself a Blue Book investigator. And, um, so to get her was just an amazing thing. And that's what that,
0: for me, that was the most important part of the show. She, she wasn't, uh, really that much of a public necessarily figure when it comes to this stuff. Am I, am I right on that? Yeah. She was fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, she was uh, totally fine with that. Uh, Yeah. But, uh, she, you know, she, she investigated she wrote uh you know uh, a a bit on ufos like i remember stumbling upon uh it was like a uh, an entry in ohio mufon's page about uh i think it was (sighs) alluding to heineck and Werner von braun getting together uh you know talking about rocketry or something like that but like she she was that person that had the inside info because he pretty much confided in her for like his entire life you know yeah, so yeah. I it was amazing and like uh one of the first you know I, I think it was the first episode um for it about the coin helicopter case she wrote extensively about that you know yeah. she she wrote in I, I pulled i used her articles for the episode that we did for our um year of the humanoid series because it's such a such a fantastic case Mm -hmm. that you know led to like the one of the you know main witnesses testifying in front of the un so it's like you know it's uh yeah yeah it it,
1: it was a big deal and jenny's investigation of that case mm -hmm. was really a high watermark Mm -hmm. for not just for kufos but for for ufo research in general i mean she really set the bar high
0: yeah no she absolutely did so i am curious like uh, did you get to know her at, at all like when you were researching the book and and such and um you know fun story like, yeah <laughs> fun story <laughs> um
1: again going back to those early days digging through the files in kufos kufos headquarters when i when i came across the sagan file and the Spielberg file. Also in the midst of all these files was this big lime green three-ring binder. Of course that caught my eye. I was like, oh, this this must be something interesting. So I flip it open, and at first I'm kind of confused. I can't tell who's writing these letters, but I quickly realized this is a it's clearly a very good friend of Dr. Heinrich's. Her name is Jenny Zeidman. She worked with Dr. Hynek on many of his Project Blue Book investigations. And she knows a hell of a lot about UFOs. She's kind of, you know, she's kind of one of these, these living history kinds of people who, like, she was there. She saw it. She remembers it all. Um, but it took me a really, really long time to, first of all, to find out if she was still alive. And then to find out how to contact her. Well, I finally contacted her. I found that she was living in Columbus, Ohio, and I called her up and I I kind of caught her off guard, of course, but I told her that I was writing a, a book about Alan Hynek and that I would really love to hear her reminiscences about Dr. Hynek, about working with him. And then I thought, well, this will convince her. I said. And I'm writing this book with the cooperation of KUFOS. And boy, it turned out that was the wrong thing to say. I had no (laughs) idea Um, because she was very polite about it. But she said, she said, well, you know, I've written a lot about those days. Those articles have have, you know, for the most part, been published in the MUFON Ohio newsletter. So she said, feel free to go through all of those. You can quote anything you want there. And I said, well, thank you. That's really wonderful. But I would still love to interview you now because I'm sure your, your memories and your perceptions have probably changed. You've had all these years to, you know, think about the things you saw. Maybe things mean different things to you now. And she hung up on me. Ah. And I sat there, you know, looking at my phone for a few seconds thinking. Should I call her back? Should I push it? Should I call her back or should I leave it be? And I just decided, well, some people want to leave the past in the past. And I don't really have any right pestering her about that. So I did as she said, I, I found all of her writing and it's wonderful writing and it's all available online. Mm-hmm. I found her writing for the Ohio MUFON chapter. It includes, you know, she's got a really vivid account of the, the coin helicopter case, among other things. So I was able to use several of those quotes in the book. And I thought they added a a lot of really wonderful things to the story of Heineke, you know, because she she just she brought out things about him personally that I would never would have, you know, known about otherwise. So so the book gets published. Uh, A couple of weeks after the book comes out, I get a call from a guy who says, hi, I'm I'm. uh, I'm Barry Zeidman. I'm Jenny Zeidman's son. Um, she'd really like to talk to you. Can I give her your contact information? And I was like, uh, I was scared to death. I was like, I don't want her calling me. <laughs> she hung up on me. I don't want her calling me up. But I thought, okay, well, I've got to do this. So I, So I gave Barry my contact info. A couple of days or a couple of weeks later, I got an email from Jenny Zeidman and I got terrified again. I was like, do I really <laughs> want to read this? Am I ready for this? And I start reading her email and it just blew me away. She said, Mark, congratulations on the book. I just read it. She said, you wrote Alan exactly as I remember. And I, you know, my jaw hit the floor. I was just stunned. What a fantastic review. To have his best friend say that uh, about the way I told his life story, that just blew me away. And I was still getting over that two weeks later when she wrote to me again. And she said, Mark, I just finished the book for the second time. And for the second time, I ended up in tears. So after that, um, Jenny and I became pen pals. Strangely enough, she would, she would every once in a while, I'd get a package in the mail and it would be, you know, a letter that Alan had written to her that hadn't ended up in the files, you know, because it was more of a personal nature or whatever. So she would send me these, you know, these really fun documents about her, you know, her correspondence with, with Heineken. And, and so when we started talking about a TV show, um, actually, this is pre TV show, I, I decided I was going to, um, I knew she she was camera shy. So I said, look, you have a lot more stories to tell. If you don't tell the stories yourself, they may get twisted and changed in ways you don't like. So I said, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make sure you get your truth on the record. I said, can we just do a, a lengthy interview and then I'll write a story based on you know, a story based on your interview that we can publish online or maybe in a publication somewhere. And she was agreeable to that, but she said, let's just do it over email. That way I can, you know, think things through and stuff. So we started for about three or four months. We had this really intense email correspondence going on. And then the TV show started sort of becoming a reality. And I called her up and I said, Jenny, you know, that interview we've been doing, what if you could do that same thing on camera? I said, it looks like this thing's coming together. We could send a camera crew to Columbus. We'll do it in your home. And amazingly, she agreed. Um, I, think, I think the idea, the way I posed it to her was that if you let somebody else tell your story, they might not get it right. So here's your chance to tell it the right way. I, I guess that really swayed her. And so that's, that's how she ended up on the show. And, and that was, again, one of our final selling points to, to the Travel Channel was like, look, look, we have like one of the oldest surviving Blue Book uh, investigators ready to sit
0: down in front of the camera and talk about her experiences. Yeah, and that's like, it's amazing because yeah we we never really got to see her in, in like any other capacity other than her writing so it was really you know a joy to see her on camera and, and talking about that case and it, in particular the coin case because like she brought up like some kind of like psychic elements to the case that were really pretty fascinating that i'd never heard before and 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 such, but and um, well, she, she found other witnesses. I mean, yeah, I mean she, yeah, she just went above and beyond, man. She did, uh, she did. So, you know, one one question that I have to ask: Okay, is Jacques Vallee really pissed off at you? Because, yes. Of, <laughs>
1: <really>? <laughs> yes, I, I, I thought you might bring that up. <laughs> yeah, so, well, you know, if if he thinks about me at all, which he probably doesn't, uh, yeah, he's usually he's usually generally pretty pissed at me. For a couple of years after the book came out, I would get a, a nasty letter from him every, every couple of months saying, uh, you know, your book is wrong. You need to you need to recall every copy of the book and issue a correction. And I'd be like, I can't, I can't do that. Right. You think I can make that decision to pull back every copy of the book and change it? No. So I guess I got to tell your your listeners the, the whole story. Please, please so, do you're probably all, or most of you, familiar with the Steven Spielberg film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Hynek was technical advisor on the movie. He was on set for a number of days uh, in Alabama. Um, he, uh, he obviously met and got to know Steven Spielberg. It was a real high-water mark for Hynek's career to be involved in this movie. But one of the main characters in the movie is a French ufologist played by the movie director, uh, Francois Truffaut. So the character's name is Lacombe, Claude Lacombe in the movie. And everyone, since the minute the movie came out and was projected onto the first movie screen, everybody has just assumed that the character in the movie, the French ufologist, was inspired by Jacques Vallée, because he was a very prominent voice in the UFO field, and he was French. And so (laughs) it was logical to assume that there was a connection. I always thought that was the case. I never thought anything otherwise. But then when I was researching, I spent a lot of time. I've been a fanboy, a science fiction fanboy for a long, long time, okay? I used Mm -hmm. to buy magazines like Starlog, any kind of magazine about science fiction or horror movie, any kind of genre movies. I was there, man. I bought it, and I kept it. I kept it sealed up and protected. I still have all of those magazines. I still have almost a complete run of Starlog. Um, But there's this one odd little magazine just called, I think it's just called Fantasy and Science Fiction Film. Um, And I happened to have a copy of that that was like a special issue dedicated to the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I was like, oh! That's the part of the book I'm writing right now. I bet I can find a few little, you know, tidbits of information here that I can put into the book. So I'm reading, I'm going through this magazine, and boom, they interviewed Jay Allen Hynek. Like, this is better than I could have expected. So I start reading that interview with Dr. Hynek. And at one point in the interview, the interviewer says, Now, is it true that one of the characters in the movie is based on a real life? colleague of yours, the French character? And I'm like, well, I know what Heineck's gonna say. He's gonna say, yes, Jacques Vallée. But instead, Dr. Heineck says, yes, Claude Poher. He said, that's the scientific connection. He he represents the scientific connection in the UFO mystery, Claude Poher. Claude Poher was a French astronomer who was probably most famous in UFO circles, as he, he for a short time, he was the head of the French government's official UFO study group. It's either Gapan or Gapan, I can't remember. I can never remember the, the acronym. Mm-hmm. But, so Claude Poher was, um, yeah, like I said, Claude Poher Ho- 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 was, was the, the head of the, the French government's UFO uh, study group. So, a very credible voice in UFO world, just like Jacques Vallée. But that's the person that Spielberg based the, the French character on, Claude Poher, not Jacques Belay. So I felt like, well, I obviously, I have to put this in the book. Because this is Heineck himself saying this. This isn't third person. This is Heineck himself telling right. this reporter, yeah, this is this is the real story here. So I put that in the book. And... Wow, Jacques Vallée was not happy. He he started he just started sending me these really furious emails. Like I said earlier, demanding that I pull the book back out of print and issue a correction. And I told him over and over again. I said, Jacques, you're acting as though you think I said this. Right. I did not say it. Your bosom buddy Jay Allen Hynek said Claude Poher. I did not say that. You got to get this straight in your head. And he just never did. So and we and so for a while, it got really heated. There was lots of emails going back and forth. and At one point, Jock even dragged George Knapp into it. Oh, God, we're 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 sending these emails back and forth. And all of a sudden, I noticed there's another line on the two line in the emails like George Knapp. And I asked Jacques, I said, well, "What's what's up with this? Why is George Knapp suddenly into this conversation? He's like, well, I just wanted to have a witness. I wanted to have a third party. I'm like, okay, but it doesn't change anything. Right. Heinex still said what he said. It's Claude Coher. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I mean, you can tell. I kind of I get a kick out of telling the story. Because ultimately, I know it's a big deal to Jacques. I get it. I mean, he's built his whole character, his whole career around... The idea that he, you know, inspired this character in the movie, but I'm sorry, you
0: didn't, right? Like your your buddy distinctly said that it wasn't you; it was yeah, the other we, guy. Yeah, and he said it. By the way, he also said it without any
1: hesitation. Right. <laughs> you know, right. he didn't. Heineken didn't have to think about how he was going to answer that question. He was just like, "Oh yeah, Claude Pomer," mm-hmm. or maybe yeah. it's Pohe. I don't know. It's a French name. I I could be slaughtering the pronunciation. I don't know. Right. But Heineck and Koher had actually met years earlier. At, and I mentioned this in the book, they had met years earlier at Cape Kennedy when they were both working on different space science projects. And they actually had a talk at that time about UFOs, specifically about the Condon Committee report. I always thought that was kind of a fascinating little tidbit.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, like, it, it, it's, it's just so wild that, that he would get that upset about it but like jacques valet and 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 i don't want to you know speak ill of the man but jacques valet values jacques valet a lot uh, especially if you read like his journals and stuff like uh, oh yeah yeah, you totally understand. He he definitely levied a lot of criticism at Einik, even though you know they were pretty close friends. You know, you included some of that in your book, like uh, yeah. you know the the yeah. debate with Sagan and how I oh, I wouldn't have shown up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I I respect the guy's work. I you know like he's got a body of work that is um, compelling. That is uh, his. It, it really makes you think. Like he's one of those guys that you know uh theorizes uses cases to uh you know exemplify that and like he's the main reason why people compare fairy stories to alien abduction accounts like he's mm-hmm. he's that guy
1: so yeah.
0: like you know the, 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 nothing but respect uh he did uh actually shoot he, it's not that he shot me down they did a bait and switch i was supposed to interview him like uh, a month and a half ago and it just didn't happen um <laughs> but uh you know that is what it is <laughs> uh-huh. wow no, nothing against him but like uh you know two like a lot of people know Jacques Vallée, but I don't think a lot of people know uh, Amy Michelle, who you know is who should be as revered in French ufology as as anybody. You know, yeah. wrote mm-hmm. two really compelling books. Uh, the second one on a theory that you know ultimately didn't pan out and kind of fell through the the you know orthotony, the straight line mystery, and all that stuff. But yeah. like uh, just a very influential uh, figure. I think part of Valet's problem is that I, th- I think
1: deep down he was always very jealous of Dr. Heineck. Mm. Strictly in terms of the amount of media attention he got. Yeah. Everybody always went straight to Heineck with their UFO questions mm. to report their cases. Nobody ever went to Valet. Everybody went straight to Heineck. And I, I became kind of aware of that because when I read... Valet's books, all pr- I think, pretty much all of them. It was all like wh- one after another in a straight line because I was at that point in my research. You know, okay, this is Jacques Valet time, and when you read all of his stuff, you know, all of his books end to end, and read all of his comments about Heineck appearing on TV, yada yada yada. It's hard not, it's hard not to think that there was a certain amount of amount of envy and jealousy going on there. I'll just I'll just leave it there.
0: <laughs> mark you you tweeted out uh you know earlier uh co- like a couple weeks a uh, week or so earlier that you know you were interviewed for six hours six plus hours by cnn <laughs> for for a documentary that has yet to see the light of day of like a five-part series so yeah. like uh how like how did you get involved in, like what did they sell you on when they when they showed up at your house to do this interview
1: So yeah this started like uh, boy over a year ago now I don't even remember who first contacted me probably oh I know' it was one, of, one of the producers of the documentary this guy uh, Lloyd, very nice guy um, contacts me and says hey uh, we are producing this five hour, five-part UFO documentary for CNN um, and Leslie Kane recommended you to us. We wonder if you'd like to do an interview, um, you know, dealing primarily with, you know, your book and your your work at, with UFO history, not necessarily dealing with current events, but dealing with, you know, UFO history, Dr. Hynek, Project Blue Book, all that stuff. And I was thrilled to be asked. I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And they said, okay, we're going to send a camera crew to your house for an entire day. And I was kind of like, Whoa, okay, this is (laughs) not what I was expecting at all. But this is really a serious uh, production. So we set a date. It was uh, September uh, 2021. Um, And yeah, they, they, a huge, huge TV crew pulled in, just took over the entire house. You know, I showed the director around the house. She's like, you know, she, my office where I'm sitting right now, she's like, okay, we can do some stuff in the office. We can do some stuff in the basement because the basement's where I do my podcasting stuff. And then we'll finish up with stuff in the living room. I was like, wow, okay, that's a lot of work, (laughs) but let's do it. Let's do it. So, yeah, we spent the whole day. We spent the whole day talking. And as I said, it was primarily talking about like famous cases. You know, What? why is this case so famous? What's the significance of it? And, you know, I love talking about that kind of stuff. So I was having a blast. Um, I I was really, really enjoying the whole day. And then we get sort of towards the end of the day. We're on our final setup downstairs in the living room. And out comes the surprise. The director starts asking me about UFO current events, not history. She starts asking me about the Nimitz encounter and about Lou Elizondo Mm. and all of that stuff. And I'm just, I was kind of like, okay, I don't know if you're going to like what I have to say. Right. Because the way she was presenting it to me, she was making it very clear that this was, that this, there was going to be a point of view in this show. And the director was for some reason blindly expecting me to support that point of view, at which I didn't do. <clears throat> I said, you know, I've never really bought into that whole thing. I I never got very excited about it the way a lot of people have. I said, it just she's like, oh. And she would you know, the director's like totally floored by this. And she goes, Why? What 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 was your problem with it? And I I said, it, the whole thing just seemed so carefully choreographed right from day one. I said, I, I could just never buy into it. It just felt like a, a manufactured moment. And I just, I never wanted to, never wanted to get involved, never, never wanted to have anything to do with it because I didn't think there was anything to it. And she was kind of like, wow, oh, okay. And I found out afterwards, see, I didn't know at the time, I, I knew that Leslie Keen had and recommended me to these guys. So I knew Leslie was involved in the project. I didn't know anybody else they were interviewing. Turns out they did interview uh, uh, Luis Elizondo. Um, so because of that, I have no idea. They've told me that I'm going to be in two out of the five episodes, but I have no idea what parts of the interview they're going to use, you know. Yeah. Um. I don't. I'd be very surprised if they used the part where I was critical of <laughs> of the current event. You know, this whole thing with Tom DeLonge to the Stars Academy is like, come on, this is such a load of crap. <laughs> give me a, give me a effing break. So you know they. they and and I just felt like, well, you. Came out here to interview with me. You apparently did not do your due diligence, or or you would have known what I was right. going to say, because I haven't exactly been shy about it on Twitter, no. or at the time in the in the blog that I was writing. Um, so so yeah, the whole interview ended on this kind of kind of this weird, interesting note, and yeah, and then it was over, and it was like uh, it's the end of the day, and then you know it took another hour for her crew. To dismantle everything the funny thing was they were like i found out very quickly that all the the entire uh video crew had flown down from new york from new york city i said wait a minute you're shooting this for cnn cnn's right down the road i mean right. I, I live in the outskirts of atlanta cnn is here what the hell and the director was like oh they do this all the time they hire outside Production companies to do you know special projects. She's like we're on their list, so you know we got this project. So I mean, overall, it was a really fun experience. Like I said, when I when when they just had me talking about UFO history, as you can tell from this interview, I'm you know I'm ready to talk for hours. Sure, this is fun. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, but yeah, towards the end it got a little weird. We'll see how they handle it. I don't know. I I I kind of hope they do include my comments on that because I think I think you know. People need to hear that, (laughs) but we'll see if they decide not to use it. I I guess I'll understand because like I said, they, they have a point of view and that's, that's
0: what they want to go with. So, so as someone who is, uh, you know, that UFO historian, what cases do you point, would you point people to, to say, Hey, it seems like there's something going on here. There's something, you know, beyond you know your 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 you know terrestrial explanation. You know, man-made. Ex- what cases do you point to that you would tell people to check out if if they were you know wanted that perspective? Uh, that's an easy one. I had
1: mentioned earlier the Pascagoula abduction case. That that would be the one. And part of that was because, as I said before. That was the first UFO case that was for me that was occur that had occurred in real time, and the investigation and the reporting on it were were taking place in real time, and and for me that was just like oh this this is real that's all I need to know this is they're reporting this on this right now in the news this is real this just happened so that case uh, you know most especially did it did it for me. Um, I mean, there are others, the the Lonnie Zamora, the Sicaro case. You, you had brought that up earlier. That's a great one, the Coin Helicopter case. Betty and Barney Hill has always been a favorite. Um, I can tell you when I started, when, when you're selling a nonfiction book, uh, when you're writing a novel, you have to write the whole novel before you try to pitch it to publishers. With a nonfiction book, I learned, you only have to write a couple of sample chapters. So uh, the first sample chapter I wrote was Pascagoula. Um, So that's, that'll tell you right there, you know, what my favorite case was. That was, that was the case that I really wanted to write about first. Um, So I did. And it, you know, and it remains one of my favorite cases. I never got a chance to talk with Calvin when obviously Calvin appeared in one of the season two episodes of UFO Witness, Uh, or maybe it was season one, I can't remember now, but at any rate because of my cancer treatment, I wasn't able to be there. And that killed me. I really wanted mm. to meet Calvin, really wanted to talk to him about that case. But yeah, that's always been a super convincing one for me. And one of the things that made it convincing, I don't know if you remember in my book, I ended up talking to the town attorney who represented yes. Hickson and Parker yes. in the aftermath of, that, of their abduction. And that lawyer was awesome. You know, he was like, he was like, look, I just want you to know I never charged them a penny. You know, basically, we were all of us just looking out for these guys. because We believed their story and we didn't want any harm to come to them. So he's like, I, I would run interference for him, basically, but
0: I never charged him a penny. It, to be honest, my first exposure to that case was your book. I had never heard of the oh, past. Wow. Of the, yeah. Wow. It, yeah. And like, by, by that time... I, I think I had been researching for maybe two years, two, three years. And I had never come across that case. Cause it's like it, it, it is like one of the more you know well-known abduction accounts. Uh, you know, if you if you have to pick pick the big three from the sixties and the seventies, it's Betty and Barney Hill, Travis Walton, and Pascagoula. And I had never heard of it. And like uh when we recorded the the book club episode, my buddy Angel, was like, I had never heard of the Pascagoula incident. And it was wow. just it's just this fascinating thing. And uh, you know, uh that's that's one of my favorite episodes that we've done because uh I knew someone, the 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 guest on for that one lived about I think 45 minutes away from Pascagoula and he ended up taking a trip down there. And, um, you know, that, that entire area was kind of, uh, there was a lot of activity in 73 in that area. And like, uh, you know, there's interesting ancillary accounts because I think it was like a month or so later that there was like a USO sighting in the same area. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a cool detail. Yeah.
1: Um, and just, you know, for your listeners, there are probably at least a few of your listeners who maybe don't know this part of that story. So these two, these two buddies were abducted by aliens, taken aboard a UFO, examined and, and, you know, left out on the pier where they were fishing, uh, and left, just sort of left to try to figure out what the hell had just happened and who they could tell. Um, and it's a really fascinating story. They ended up going to the local police department and the police chief or the sheriff, split them up they interviewed them they interviewed the two witnesses in separate in separate rooms proper police procedure right and then they put the two witnesses back together in the same room and all the all the all the officers and sheriffs they all left the room just left these two guys alone and the two guys start talking about what they had just experienced and they're they're clearly you can, you can listen to those transcripts. They, these mm. guys are terrified. They've just gone through a life-altering event. The sheriff, unbeknownst to anyone, had left a tape recorder running on record in that room because he was sure he was going to catch these guys in a hoax. But instead, he, they all listened to this tape afterwards, and they're all like, holy shit, these guys re- these guys were telling the truth. Yeah. And it was that recording, right? That It was that recording that has sort of made that case such mm-hmm. a credible, I mean, for me at any rate, and I know for a lot of other people, that recording is, is like, put that case over the top. It's like, how can you deny something incredible, amazing, terrifying happened to these guys? Yeah. But listen, though, I want to add this one thing because mm-hmm. we had talked before about all the unused material I had when the book yeah. was done. There's another interesting story about Pascagoula, Rolling Stone Magazine. Now, this story made national headlines, okay, as as I've alluded to before. This story was headline news all across the country. Rolling Stone Magazine sends a reporter to Pascagoula. And this reporter is this hotshot guy who ended up becoming a really rich Hollywood screenwriter years later. But he goes to Pascagoula, he interviews everybody, and he writes this story in which he just... Viciously rips everybody in Pasquimula to shreds because uh, they're these pathetic country bumpkins and they'll believe anything. Course. Yeah. So, and, he, and he, the writer, you know, he's the sophisticated big city writer for Rolling Stone, you know, he knows better than everybody else. And his, this, I, I, I have a copy of his article. It took me a long time to find it, but I found a copy of the article. This guy's vicious. Especially with Calvin and, and Charlie, the two, the two abductees. This guy just tears them apart. It's the most disgusting bit of, I don't know, you can't even call it journalism. It was just disgusting the way he treated these people. Yeah. That's the story.
0: Uh, yeah. And like, even, you know, Carl Sagan did it when, you know, they went on uh, the Dick Cavett show and. Oh, and yeah. And like, you know, that that's nothing new. i i i've I've seen clips of uh, Philip class destroying uh, Ed Walters on Oprah, which, you know, whatever your opinions on Ed Walters is. it's like it's the traditional playbook of of Philip class just labeling yeah. someone a liar and, you know, stuff. but like what i've what I found interesting about Pascagoula when I did the the research for that Year of the humanoid series is that um up until. 1973 there really hadn't been years in which there were many multiple abductions taking place Mm. but what i found is that there were five and they all occurred within about a week of each other which was very weird to me um yeah yeah but uh uh there there were there were a couple that um there was one guy in alabama who had his entire truck abducted with him and uh he was kind of sucked up into uh yeah this ufo and he had this encounter and um it was actually printed i think in the international ufo investigator or it might have been the uh Mm. center's quarter monthly uh quarterly or whatever um that they that uh qfos had uh, ran across it in there but uh yeah it was it was weird that you know in that time period five abductions within the span of like a week to 10 days, which is very weird. <laughs> That's kind of creepy. It's kind of making the hair in the back of my neck stand on end. Yeah. Uh, you know, folks, if you have never gotten lost in David Webb's year of the humanoids report, you should really do it because it's, it's, it's very strange. There's a lot of very uh-huh. strange stuff in there. But uh, yeah, like five abduction cases. Most of them were in uh the southern united states there was one that took place in arizona and then another one in argentina but yeah all uh-huh. within that short span of time just uh weird. Just a weird thing yeah it's, it's a very weird, weird thing <laughs> Yeah, but uh mark i can't thank you enough for coming on and and, and talking all about ufos and all this stuff uh if people want to keep up with you where's where's the best place to do that uh, I am on Twitter, at least at least for now.
1: I guess <laughs> I have to say that now. I'm on Twitter um, <laughs> at Mark O'Connell underscore one. That's O'Connell with two N's and two L's. Um, also, my podcast, which I don't do nearly as frequently as you do yours. <laughs> I'm way overdue. I think I'm going to record a new episode of my podcast tomorrow. It's called Far Fetched. Uh it's on a platform called Podbean, but you can find it on Apple Podcasts and all all the major podcast platforms uh I think carry it. Uh capital F A R dash Capital F E T C H E D far fetched. Far-fetched. Um and you could it might be easier to look it up under my name O'Connell, I'm not sure. I'm still, I'm still a little clumsy with this social media stuff, like how to attract more listeners and stuff. I don't, I don't do a very good job of it, but at any rate, far fetched. But I have to, I have to warn people though, far fetched is not strictly speaking about UFOs. Mm. Um, when I first had an idea for a podcast, my first idea was, Hey, I should read all my failed Star Trek pitches. I bet there'd be two or three people in the world who'd listen to those. Yeah. So that's what my podcast uh, became. It's basically me reading, uh, basically telling about my life as a writer, but also reading my unsold Star Trek pitches. And there are many, there are many, many unsold (laughs) Star Trek pitches, believe me. And there are, and I was right, there are two or three people who seem to uh, enjoy listening to them, uh, uh, including my kids. So... (laughs)
0: <laughs> hey man when you got your kids on board like that's that's important yeah you're unstoppable you're unstoppable exactly right? no <laughs> nobody could take you out at that at that point oh, oh, man. yeah huh. that's funny stuff man and yeah. back in
1: the day when i first started all this stuff my kids would always be like we need to talk to dad is Dad all right <laughs> that still cracks me up
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that that's great. That is, that is fantastic. Mark, thank you again for joining me. It's this has yeah, been it's a blast. Yeah, it's been fun, Rob. I appreciate you you're inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely. Special thanks once again to Mark O'Connell for coming on the podcast, telling all these great stories. If you enjoyed it, go give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, his feed is really great. Go listen to his podcast, fetched. Uh And, uh, you know, go pick up a copy of The Close Encounters, man. It's truly one of my favorite UFO books of all time. It's a great biography. It's a great history. And uh, it's really a great addition to any library um, that uh, has UFO material in it. As for us here at the Our Strange Skies podcast, you can find us on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, purchase some merchandise or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to ourstrangeskies.com, your one-stop shop for this podcast. Uh, You can find all of that as well as our fantastic digital resource page, which uh, you can get lost in for hours looking through all of these sources and they're the same sources that i use to make this podcast all the time sans like the books that i use which uh, i don't use as many books as i i've used in the past mostly because of the time that it takes me to read i am a very slow reader so um finding these resources has been very handy um If you would like to send me stuff, you can do that. I have a P.O. Box. Uh, It's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. And if you haven't already, please go check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that uh, I do with my buddy Todd Purse. We put out one a month. And, uh, you know, it's a five panel comic that depicts real life UFO encounters, alien encounters, all sorts of strange stuff. So uh, if you're uh, if you really want to check that out, you can follow us on Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps and Instagram at Welcome UFO People we do release high res images on our Patreon and we're working on some like physical media here we're working on it. Todd's, uh, experimenting right now, but we should be getting some, uh, like physical prints out there real soon. And when we have enough of them, we're going to collect them. We're going to put them in a zine or a book or something that, uh, you guys can get your hands on. So follow along on social media, stay updated about that. And, um, we just actually uh, released our third installment of it uh, dedicated to the Bernice Sniblett, uh story that we covered on episode 124 with Will Truman. Just a, one of my all time favorite episodes, one of my all time favorite stories. So uh, if you want to see that one come to life a little bit, go check out uh, Welcome UFO Peeps and Welcome UFO People Twitter and Instagram, and uh, you know get a gander at that. Todd really knocked it out of the park on that one. Our Strange Skies is a proud member of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of the, uh, our theme song UFO. Go check out. Mark's stuff. It's 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 really great. Um, the song UFO is from an album that is yeah, ironically titled Not an Album. So uh, go check it out. It's it's really great. Uh, Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain for this podcast. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg, and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up Because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or in the pages of the Close Encounters Man. In Gray, we trust. I think it's so me. I wish you could stay Cause I thought we had lots to say
1: Duvied Media